I'm by the Bridgewater Canal near Manchester, waiting to talk to someone with a fascinating story to tell. I was literally just about to ring you. Um, someone who's undertaken an epic world record journey and has been so important in the fight against sewage and plastic in our seas. Hey, all right, how's it going? Nice to meet you. I'm Etienne Stock, and I'm meeting Cal Major for the first time. Time for introductions. So I'm a gold medal. I'm a gold medal winning canoeing and two-man canoeing. I've is got my medal with me. Yes. So this is my best mate's house, who ah. I'm staying with for a couple of days. She was in the 2012 Olympics in water polo. So, doing a podcast. It's called Clear Access Clear Waters, a paddlers podcast. We're here to talk about some of the things we are both passionate about. It's about people who have got some connection to this issue, mm -hmm. variously. So we've had like people like, well, I had Steve Backshaw just the other day, who's awesome. And I think you'll find this just as awesome. Amidst the noise of the city and the wildlife of the canal, I settled down with Cal Major, vet, adventurer, and founder of Paddle Against Plastic. Well, it's lovely to meet you, Cal. I've seen you on the internet and on Twitter and Facebook. You know, you're doing a lot of cool work, but I think what seems to be the most amazing thing that you've done is you're a world record holder. And I'm like, I've got world record envy. And I'm not sure how many people know about it. And I think it'd be really cool. because it sounds like an epic challenge. And just talk a little bit about that. Oh, thank you very much. Well, I think I've got Olympics envy. So maybe we could, <laughs> I don't know, swap for the day one day. Um, so the world record is for stand-up paddleboarding the length of the United Kingdom. So from Land's End to John O'Groats, I did that last year, 2018. Um, so I hold the record for the, the first and the fastest time for doing it. And it was a, it was a thousand miles, right? Mm, just and that, shy of a thousand miles, yeah. And so that strikes me, it was, you know, physically going to be very demanding. But I read your blog, which I, I'm going to recommend, and we're going to include a, a, a notes to it, you know, in, in the notes for this podcast. It sounded like it was a really emotional experience as well, and, and the up and down and, and very kind of striking about what you saw and experienced out there. Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of the time with these kind of big challenges, people focus on the physical side of things and, you know, there's quite a lot of machoism going on. But for me, the the mental side of things is much more powerful. Um, and that's both in terms of having the resilience, the mental resilience to push, push yourself and push your physicality to keep going, um, but also what being out on your own for two months um, does to how you feel about yourself, how you feel about the environment around you. For me, I was grieving the loss of a friend, so it was really, really powerful for me to kind of be able to spend those two months out on the ocean thinking about her. You know, I, I think so often we're, we're quick to look at the physical challenge, but actually there's so much more depth to a, a big expedition than that. And you say, yeah, so it struck me when you're saying I, 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 that sort of chance for reflection when you're out and about and that solitary aspect, that mm. strikes me as being incredibly peaceful or, or give you that space. Yeah, yeah, it is peaceful. And I mean, some days you're out in the water and, you know, it's blowing a storm and you have to have your wits about you and you're paying attention to every movement of the, every you know, little wave in the water, every cloud that comes past, every different colour. Um, because you know that the conditions are so that you really need to keep keep concentrating. But some days when it was just me and the ocean and it was calm and I could see right down into the sea, I could see all the plants and the animals underneath me and there was just this horizon to the left or the right of me and, and nothing else and that was when I found the most peace and... I think so much in our lives, we're so busy, we're so frazzled. If we go and spend time outside, it's for you know a quick half an hour, a quick hour surf or whatever. 
to actually have the opportunity to spend, you know, up to 10, 12 hours a day out on the water on the board on my own was so powerful and really helped me acknowledge how important it is for me to, to quiet things down and, and to really listen to what's going on inside and to take that time out to, to heal and reflect and, um, and just, uh, j- just, just be, with, be with nature. And I think that my I'm an, I'm a river paddler I suppose or well I'm a slalom paddler so I've paddled on artificial courses a lot and I've paddled some rivers in in land but when I have been out onto the sea you get this incredible sense of scale of how little you are especially in a kayak or canoe you you know you low down every wave looks massive but is this sense of the horizon either side yeah. and it's that sense of awe I think that feels really good for me yeah I completely agree I, I need a horizon and I think it's different for everybody so for, for you you're obviously a massive river lover I love the oceans my boyfriend's a mountain lover and um, he's also a, um, a filmmaker so occasionally he'd do sort of top-down drone shots of me paddling and then you'd be able to really see the scale of ocean versus little paddle border um, but I think in terms of that sense of awe for me it's not necessarily the horizon and the vastness of it but the power associated with um, the wind or the waves or the whatever's going on around you when you're out in nature I always feel like I'm I am put back in my place and very acknowledging of how small I am and how um and the relevance of everything that goes on in our lives compared to this immense power of nature. I found it, find it incredibly humbling spending time there and realising that at any point in time, that nature that I'm immersed in could completely and utterly kick my ass. Mm. And I have to respect that. It's something so much <laughs> bigger than you, isn't it? You have to respect that and, and feel really humbled by it. I find it amazing. And it struck me as well that it was there was some quite legitimately kind of not maybe dangerous is a strong word but it was some times that were really quite serious and quite intense and and that seems like I must have been really hard as well as again being on your own yeah th- there were um some pretty hairy moments um and I think that's again where you you start to acknowledge where your strengths lie so moments that you know beforehand had I known I would be in those situations I would have avoided them at all costs thinking I wouldn't be able to cope with them wouldn't be able to make the appropriate decisions and then actually being immersed in in that situation you start to realize actually that you are able to calm yourself you're able to make those decisions able to um to find the the physical strength to push through those situations and also the mental resilience to kind of keep going um yeah it, it I think that's one of my favorite things about being out on these expeditions is you learn so much about yourself about yourself here by the canal, we've had a few passers-by eavesdropping. Runners, cyclists, dog walkers. Look at this dog. I, I think I feel that because I'm a vet, I have the right to touch any animal I yeah, want. Yeah, but you probably know they don't just, like, jump on you and, like, tear yeah. your throat out. I'm yeah. a bit nervous about dogs, so they, and they can like, tell that you're scared, yeah. so they... They read it, yeah. yeah. No, I can definitely oh, read it. Hello, Are you a solitary person or are you a group person? Because I think some people have this idea that, you know, you're one or the other, but I, I really like both. Yeah, I, I do too. So... I really, really value my time on my own, really value space. And for me, being on a paddleboard is about that. Um, I really enjoy that. But I also bounce off people. So especially with my campaigns, I need people around me who get it, who feel the, you know, the same kind of en- energy towards what I care about. Um, I love my time with my friends and my boyfriend and my family. So I think I would agree with you. It's a real... It's got to be a combination of the two for me. If I spend too much time on my own, I go a bit crazy. If I spend too much time with people, I just 
feel like I need to go and lock myself in a toilet and get away from it all. You know, it, it's a balance, isn't it? And I think that balance is very different for everybody, that, that sort of division between the two. And you, this is really something very clearly all the way through you about plastic pollution and kind of engaging people with this issue getting people on the case with it and it struck me that well we're just we're stood by a canal here walking you know along the canal standing by the canal is, is we've got a problem here haven't we yeah yeah we have a massive problem so one of the decisions i made with the expedition last year um was to take a couple of hundred miles inland so go through some of the canal and river networks and I've never been a river or canal paddler before. Mm. For me, it was always about the ocean. And for me, it was always about that connection to the ocean, whether I was there individually or with friends. Um, and so to take that decision to go inland was quite a tricky thing to do because I knew that it wasn't going to be the environment that I particularly loved being in. But I felt like it was a really important um, step to take to help connect the dots between what's going on inland and the marine litter crisis out mm. to sea. And not necessarily segregating those two issues. It's not the marine litter crisis and plastic pollution on land. It's all completely interconnected. Mm. Um, and, you know, a lot of plastic pollution does, does start in land, in the rivers and in the canals, and, and then it's hard to see. And you, 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 you struck me earlier, because I've often been in the North Sea, and the North mm. Sea is kind of brown and murky and a bit churned up, whether you said it was clear and you could see the bottom of, of the sea. And seeing these amazing places, it's kind of heartbreaking, I find, when you find even not-so-nice places when you see litter and, and plastic pollution, especially because now we're knowing about it, we know it's going to be there for maybe hundreds and maybe even thousands of years, depending on what it is. Yeah. It's really interesting you say that about the North Sea. So mm. one of the things that struck me, you know, I went a thousand miles from one end of the country to the other, and there was no 100-mile section that was the same as the previous 100-mile section. It changed so much. Every day was different. Every small piece of coastline was, was different to before. And I think we're so lucky here in the UK to have that right on our doorstep. You know, we, we are an island with the most amazing coastline. And to be able to spend time and appreciate that, I think, is really important. And I think actually going and exploring the coastline is where we start to see things like plastic pollution. And if we can go and spend time there and appreciate how wonderful it is and how amazing it makes us feel and then see the problems that are facing these amazing places, then we're more likely to feel outraged by it and, and to do something. Um, and certainly, you know, we are finding plastic on every single beach, but so much is happening now to help tackle it. Mm. Um, and... Anecdotally, I can really see a difference in the beaches in the southwest where I live between four or five years ago when I first started campaigning against plastic um, to now. And I think that is all based on people's awareness of the fact that it's an issue and their willingness to do something about it through beach cleans. During a world record paddleboard from Land's End to John O'Groats, Cal spent a fair amount of time on the canals. Well, I did about 200 miles of canals and rivers, all told. And I had this um, vision in my head that every day on the canals was going to be like, I was going to get on at sunrise and paddle till sunset and get like 50, 60 miles in every day. Um, and the reality was that the canals were actually the hardest bit of the whole trip. I found that just keeping going day after day with no tides or wind to fight against, no motivation other than self-propelled motivation was really, really hard. And there were a lot of pubs on the canal. Uh -huh. So there were so many opportunities to just stop for a breather. Stop for a breather and a brew. I didn't stop for a brew. 
And did you, so when you're just saying now, just, it was, I, I thought it was quite cool. Um, when you said about that you were going along against the wind or against the current, do you like that or do you like charging with the wind and charging with oh, the current? Or? There's no feeling like having the wind behind you. It's amazing. There were so many days on the ocean when I'd have a side wind, so I had to paddle on one side the oh, entire misery. time. It's awful. And I paddled <laughs> with a canoeist actually one day, with Joe, Joe Reed Dickens, okay. um, who works with Palm Equipment. And we were kayaking under the Seven Bridge and up to Sharpness. And it was a really, like, nasty headwind. It was about, I don't know, maybe 16 or 18 knot headwind. Um, and on a stand-up paddleboard, that's almost impossible to fight against. And Joe was just pootling along next to me in his sea kayak, having a lovely time. I was like, Joe, what kind of, what percentage effort are you putting in at the minute? Because I'm on about 89, 90. He's like, I hate to tell you, Cal, I'm about 30%. And then we got we got to Sharpness. And he was like, I couldn't tell you at the time, but I was actually doing about 15%. Yeah. And um, I was there, like, dripping in sweat oh. and hyperventilating. And then, I suppose, then, when you turned, did you turn or did you carry on? I suppose you didn't turn around. You just no, around. just, no, just, no, I was going in one direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah so that's no, the issue when yeah, you're going in one thing, direction. Yeah, you can't yeah. choose which way you go with the wind. And you can tell you're obviously a sea person because you talk about wind in knots. And I always just look at miles an hour on the BBC weather forecast. Or, They're fairly similar. And I thought to myself, you know, you you're clearly you do you stand up paddleboard and you're advocate and surfer as well and you're involved with Surfers Against Sewage and that brings me to think you know Surfers Against Sewage is quite a widely known organisation but what's your involvement with them and what what do they get get up to here? Surfers Against Sewage were actually pretty pivotal in the beginning of my campaigning with Paddle Against Plastic. So it was when I first started seeing plastic on the beaches and being um, upset about it. Um, and feeling quite alone and knew I needed to find other people who cared and I found my tribe in Surfers Against Sewage. So I started running um, beach cleans with them. Um, I'm a regional rep for SAS and um, through that sort of power of community, through having those like-minded people there, that's what helped me realise that what I was campa- campaigning for was important and was what we were asking for was achievable. And um, I think there campaign around plastic pollution has been instrumental in a lot of the kind of um, top-down change we've seen so you know grassroots activism can be seen as quite a sort of small small scale um, effort but it's not it's absolutely fundamental we've got to have grassroots activism coming from the bottom up and we've got to have um, policy change coming from the top down they've got to meet in the middle but without the bottom up um, pressure we're not going to see top-down change and um Surfers Against Sewage, they have an amazing campaign called the Plastic Free Coastlines Campaign. And all around the UK, they've created plastic-free communities, which doesn't mean that those communities are all living completely plastic-free. It means that there's lots of like-minded individuals coming together in the local community to talk about plastic and to figure out how in their community they can reduce the amount of plastic that's used at source and they run beach cleans and they run river cleans and canal cleans and I think it's um, a really brilliant way that has brought lots of individual people who are concerned about this and maybe not knowing what to do together and giving people and communities purpose and in the last couple of years so every year Surfers Against Sewage run an annual autumn and a spring beach clean series and in the last couple of years 
they've extended that to rivers and canals and even this year mountains you know anywhere basically in the acknowledgement that plastic isn't just around the beaches it's coming from inland too mm. and i know british canoeing have had quite a lot to do with the with the river cleanups there with the um with the spring and autumn cleanup series so it, it's a, a really amazing kind of nationwide all-encompassing campaign that started from a grassroots group of people saying we don't want plastic on our beaches we're gonna have to go and speak to them Next. I think so. I think you should. <laughs> That's for another time. For now, we strolled a little further south along the towpath. And so you think clean-ups, because we used that word outrage earlier on, and it's something that I think we're going to start to see more of. We're already seeing it. Yeah. Um, but that outrage being channelled in, in a positive yeah. way, that strikes me a really interesting aspect to what you just said. I think that's one of the things... One of the great things about the plastic pollution um, campaigns that are going at the moment. Plastic, you can see it, you can pick it up, you can touch it, you can be really angry about the fact that it's in an environment that you care about and then you can do something about it because you can connect it back to what you're using in your life or you can you know, um, ask businesses and, and, and companies to use less plastic. Um, it's a really great campaign in that it's very tangible. It's very tangible to actually understand that it's a problem but also to understand where we can positively affect it. And I think that that um, aspect of it can be very empowering for people f who are first starting to appreciate the need to protect the environment. So if we can sort of almost utilise this to our advantage, it can then perhaps be very empowering to um, to lead into other campaigns such as the ecological crises that we face or um, or the climate the climate change issues that are, uh, that, that are so obviously in the media at the moment like they're so intangible, so difficult to grasp and yet if we can sort of empower people to feel like they can do something positive with plastic maybe they'll be able to feel like they can do something positive with other campaigns as well that's quite heartening to me I think because you know, I, you, you, you know I'm really passionate about climate breakdown, mm -hmm. ecological crisis and I think people are really focused on plastic and it's really good but I'm glad you see it as a sort of a gateway, gateway. to a broader issue yeah. and even this environmental stuff is a, is an even gateway into an even broader issue of how we consume in society and how we treat yeah. our, our planet and our world. I com completely agree. I think um, so there's a lot of sort of people are often quite scathing around beach cleans and cleanups saying you know it's not the it's not the answer to the issue the issue the answer sorry is stopping the plastic at source it's stopping using so much plastic but why are people going to care or make the right choices to stop plastic at source or put pressure on on the companies that they buy from or vote correctly why are they going to do any of that if they don't understand it's an issue in the first place mm. and those cleanups are where people can first start to appreciate it's an issue and where rather than feeling completely overwhelmed by this massive issue they can feel empowered to do something positive about it so i think cleaning cleanups are really powerful for that first stage i don't think they're the answer to the problem i don't think that that cleaning it all up is going to solve the issue but it's certainly going to start to create that behavioural change that we need. But I think it's also really important that we don't kind of pigeonhole different crises. You know, we don't mm. pigeonhole plastic pollution, climate breakdown, um, the ecological crisis, biodiversity loss. They're not all separate things. They're all massive, massively related. Plastic, you know, virgin plastic is made from crude oil. It's, it's you know, it's a carbon-based product. If we're trying to decarbonise, then we need to use less plastic. Um, but I think rather than kind of looking at these individual issues, we need to kind of look at the big picture. 
And we know that know now that the big picture, that the most pressing issue facing our planet is um, is loss of biodiversity, ecosystem collapse, change of land use, um, basically destroying natural places. And if we want to create a resilient planet that can can cope with things like um, with carbon in the atmosphere, then we need to really maintain those ecosystems. But before all of that, I think is a more pressing issue, which is the fact that as a society in general, we seem to have become very disconnected from nature and from our natural world, not just from what nature means to sustaining our lives. So, for example, not just disconnected from the fact that the oceans produce half our oxygen, but disconnected from what it means to be a human in that environment spending time in nature and appreciating how important it is for our well-being our mental health our physical health and i think if we can start to sort of reconnect those dots to to understanding how important our natural world is for us um then we're more likely to help you know people are more likely to fall in love with it and more likely to want to protect it and understand the importance of these sort of environmental campaigns that that are uh, that are so obvious at the moment cal is a trained vet and that gives her a real insight into what's going on out there. Yeah, definitely. In the veterinary profession, there's an, um, a concept called One Health, oh. which is basically saying that human health, animal health and planetary health are not three separate things. Mm. They're all interconnected. And we can't expect to be able to um, have healthy animals without a healthy planet and healthy people. And equally, we can't expect healthy people without a healthy planet, healthy animals. And it's a really interesting concept that I, that I really love. And it's interpreted um, differently amongst different sort of veterinary demographics. Um, but for me, you know, I went into... I went to train as a vet because I really, really care about animals and I care about their welfare. Um, before I went to uni, I learned to scuba dive and I fell in love with the ocean. And from that moment onwards, I knew that I wanted to dedicate my life to protecting the animals in the oceans. So for me, it's not just about you know being a vet, being you know a, a small animal clinician, and then. Um, running environmental campaigns it's all so connected mm. I care about the animals on this planet I, I care about the ecosystems I care about the people it being a, a lot of the time is about the people as well and I think it's all it, it's all so connected so it often makes me kind of giggle a bit when people ask you know are you still a vet it's like well yes that is the driving force behind all of this it, all those reasons why I why I train to be a vet are the same reasons why I run these campaigns and I think that is one of the interesting things I've heard you say it a couple of times in this debate about what we need to do as a, as a species to survive and to, to look after our... It's not like about this or that. It seems like we need to be sort of and, you know, yeah. animals and people and our planet, plastic at source and plastic cleanups. We need to do all of this all at once. Yeah. We've got to look at the big picture. It's really easy to kind of, I don't know, look for the solution but there isn't one solution to any of this and I think that's sometimes where it can feel quite overwhelming for individuals to know what the what 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 they have to do mm. but there's not one thing that every person has to do it could be different for everybody um, and you know if there's a particular thing that you care about if, for example your rivers if someone's going to go and dam your rivers you're going to you're going to fight against that aren't you you know it, and, and that's okay if that's what you're doing to protect the natural world then that's blooming brilliant and we have to encourage everybody to 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 fight to protect what they love regardless of what category of environmentalism mm. that falls into 
And this is that, that thing is that we're all connected actually by our environment at the end of the day. And we've all got a stake in its protection. And that's, yeah. I suppose, where we're kind of coming from here. You know, we're saying actually paddle sports and people who access these rivers. I noticed also you're into, you know, into open water swimming, um, wild swimming. This is another way of getting out there and, and you've got a stake in it. We yeah. want to look after these places. We want to have access to them so that we can enjoy them, but also look after them and, and, and make them make them valuable to us. Definitely. People protect what they love, but they'll only love what they know and what they've experienced. And I think that's where, as water users, we have a really unique ability to be stewards of those environments. Like, we spend time there, we see the issues that they face, but we're also passionate enough about them that we're going to do something about it. And we often have communities as well. Um, I mean, you only have to look at things like the... the um, the Save Glenetive campaign, which is run by mountaineers, kayakers, swimmers, people who spend time there and love it. And um, it, it, sorry, I didn't really explain the Glenetive campaign. Basically, the, the River Etive is is being dammed, and there's a campaign against it, which was run by people who love that place because they adventure there, they spend time there, and, and they love it. And um, I think, you know, for anybody who is a paddler who's wondering what on earth they can do in these massive crises that we're being told about every day, you know, global warming, biodiversity loss, then the simplest thing that you can do is to actually look at the places that you love, that you paddle, that you care about. What's going on there? What are the issues that they're facing? And what action can you take? Who can you bring together in that campaign with you? What can you do about that place that you love? And if we're all looking after those little places that we love then I think that goes a long way to, to protecting, you know, the, the ecosystems at large. And we talked quite a bit about empowerment, and this comes out with quite a few of the different podcasts as well. Empowerment now, people feel small and, and like they can't do something. And, you know, how are they going to get in the game here? And this is what we need, isn't it? It's like to get people out, out there doing stuff and yeah. feeling like they can do something. Definitely. And it just takes one little bit of action to feel really proud of, which can lead on to the next bit and the next bit and the next bit. And yeah, it can feel like what on earth can one person do in this, you know, huge, massive world and all these problems. But there are so many instances of one person making big change and more importantly, of small communities making change. I think if you are feeling alone and... Um, you know, confused as to what you can do as an individual find your tribe find your tribe of like-minded people who also care about this stuff who are also willing to put their head above the parapet and speak up for it that can be very very empowering and you were asking before about my alone time versus my people time if I don't spend enough time with my tribe I start to feel worried as well and concerned about what I can do and actually if I spend time with the people who share my beliefs and are as passionate as I am to do something about it then that really gives me the motivation to keep going just knowing that there are other people out there who are supporting me believing in what I'm doing feels very empowering and I think it's it's really important that we don't underestimate the power of grassroots activism when it comes from communities, groups of people together. And that's the beauty of the paddle sports communities, really, isn't it? You know, we have those groups of people. Pre-built communities, exactly. I guess. Yeah, exactly. And I thought as well very strongly, and you've kind of alluded to it a few times, we've heard it again, is that this aspect of mental health 
being outside this kind of healing uh, aspect of, of outdoors and of our activities whether it's stand up paddleboarding or canoe and kayaking or anything yeah, I know you do all sorts of other activities as well just getting out there's something very important here and, and, and I'm a sense that this is such an important issue now and this is a this is something that we've got a way of addressing through our sports or our activity definitely so i think the first thing i'd like to say about that is that each and every one of us has mental health not every one of us has mental illness mm. but we all have mental health and so accepting that is the first thing we need to do in reducing the stigma around this term mental health, mm. which historically, at least, has always been seen as kind of a bit of an obscure side of the, of the medical profession. Um, we all have the ability to improve our mental health through being out in nature. It's, it's scientifically proven um, to be very beneficial for our well-being to be outside in nature. Um, I talked a little bit before about that disconnect that I think is kind of running riot among society. Yeah, very much. And I think my personal opinion is that that is also partly responsible for the increase in mental illness that we've seen amongst people. And that's not, you know, there are specific um, mental illnesses that obviously aren't going to be um, curable or manageable even with, with time outside. We're talking about things like depression and anxiety, which, um, you know, time in nature has been proven to be, to be beneficial for. But I think rather than just kind of focusing on mental illness, we need to actually take a step back and look at how can we preserve our mental health before we, before we kind of become ill. And for me, time in nature is, is, is the first and foremost thing. Whatever it is, whatever, whichever patch of nature it is that you love and that feels the, the most wonderful to you... And then I think if, if we can actually appreciate how amazing being out in nature makes us feel, how brilliant it is for our mental health, then we're more likely to fall in love with it and we're more likely to do what we can to protect it. And so for me, those two things, environmentalism, mental health and that reconnection to nature, they're all completely linked. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I really think that, again, looking at the big picture, it's reconnection that's, that's the missing link there. And I think it's really lovely what you're saying because as, as you were talking now, I was kind of struck to myself, actually this Clear Access, Clear Waters campaign, which Canoon is, 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 is pushing, is actually about connection. That's the bottom line. And I actually agree with you 100% that connection is what we need to do more of and or we, we, we hope to try and do more of. And yeah. I thought I'd ask you a little bit, why, how, what, what's brought you into this campaign and, and, and what, what strikes you about it? Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, giving people access to nature on their doorstep is really important. We can't all go to the beach every day. We don't all live geographically it's in a suitable place for that. Can't go to the mountains every day. But regardless of where we are in the UK, we're never too far from a canal or a river. And these are places of nature. That they're places right next to us. Wherever city we're in, there's a canal there, pretty much, or a river. And, you know, we're here today and the sun's shining, which makes it so much more wonderful. But even just being by the water, there's plants around, there are ducks. It's just so calming. Just across the road from us here, there's a massive dual carriageway. I walked down it this morning, I felt really stressed. I feel no stress being here by the canal. And so acknowledging that it doesn't have to be vast mountain ranges or beautiful sandy beaches that makes us feel better. It can be the canal at the end of the road, a river running through the city, anywhere that is a little bit 
more natural than our streets and our roads um, and ensuring that people understand their rights to access that is really important because that's going to be a barrier you know we need to remove all barriers to getting people outside people are busy enough anyway we've got busy lives we're all stressed we're all stretched if we can remove as many barriers as possible to getting people outside then i think that's the first step in helping nurture those relationships with with things like rivers and canals so the clear access clear waters campaign is is really important for that not just in in informing people where they are and aren't allowed in inverted commas to be but also kind of making these places a bit more accessible and and more openly um, available to people and it is really shocking every time I've done every episode of this you know you remind myself of the facts that how little we're allowed access to and and very very clearly here in Manchester you know I don't know how far we are from the city centre you can hear the sirens and there's cars passed and there's bikes coming past but actually this canal is like a little corridor it's not most amazing you know it's not a beautiful river but it's got peace it's got something here which is important and I suppose out there in, in, in other parts of the country people just can't get to these places and that strikes me as being wrong and, and I, I think that we can we can make the case so powerfully for our our rights but also our responsibility for these places which is where you're talking about this you know cleanups and all this sort of yeah. thing yeah and I think it's important that it's not phrased that you know the campaign isn't phrased as it's just about you know people going out and having a laugh on the canal because they're entitled to in their boats it's about everybody it's about the fact that we you know, we have these resources here and in a nation that is struggling with its mental health and struggling with its... Physical health as well, right? Yeah, Everything. Exactly. Why... Like, these are perfect resources to help tackle those things. You know, this, you know, this isn't just about kayakers going and having a laugh. This is so much bigger than that. Mm. And so I'm sort of struck, you know, we've talked about what you you know this epic lands into John O'Groats stand up paddle boy mission it was like amazing and I'm wondering what you've been involved in since and, and what's next yeah so it took me a long time to recover I actually suffered with my own mental health pretty badly afterwards it took a long time to recover from that and I think more than actually um, a specifically driven mental health issue it was a, a physiological reaction to everything I put my body through um, so you know that expedition took a massive toll on me and um, it was it was a pretty terrifying time afterwards to, to try and come through that um, and you know I would, would never ever wish depression on anybody ever it was the, the most terrifying and haunting experience and yet I feel very grateful to have come to the other side so that I can maybe at least slightly empathise with some people who may be struggling with depression or anxiety. Um, and I feel really lucky to have, yeah, come to the other side and, and I use nature as my, as my um, therapy a lot of the time. Um, I found cold water swimming. There were days when I couldn't get out of bed and my boyfriend would drag me out of bed to the nearest lake or river or sea and throw me in and wouldn't let me out until I was giggling. And every time without fail, I would come out giggling, full of, full of life, you know, happy, even if just for a short period of time. And so uh, even for that reason, I have such a deeper respect and love for the ocean, which is what I mean about people realising what it means to their well-being. Like, I, I, I don't know, like, I've got no way of thanking the ocean for all those times mm. it helped me during that really really terrible time um and um so i feel really passionately about helping other people see that as well um 
We made a film about my Land Centre John O'Groats expedition and I've just finished touring with that around the UK. So I did a, um, a tour by bike and the film actually, I, you know, I originally thought that the film was going to be around plastic pollution and around the adventure and all that kind of thing. And James, my, my partner, has made an absolutely beautiful film about it, which kind of shows quite a lot of the backstory too. So um, it was very unexpected when I first watched it. It was not how I thought the film was going to look. But there's a lot of discussion in there around the need to reconnect to nature and, and some, you know, mentions of mental health as well. Um, and we just talked with the film and, and had some really, really interesting discussions after the after the films with some really wonderfully open people all around the UK. So I'm, I'm really grateful um, that I could be there for those discussions. And they're helping to inform um, a charity I'm setting up called the Vitamin C Project. So that's oh, okay. Vitamin C S E A. And that's basically all we've been talking about is helping people find that connection so that they're more likely to want to protect the environment and so that they can appreciate how important nature is their well-being well i've got to say it's wonderful hearing you talk about this you know you're you're so passionate and you're really eloquent and you've talked about it and it is really nice to hear that you're involved in such a wonderful way and i i'm really grateful you're spending the time with us today i think i think we should go and get some lunch i think that's a great idea and thank you very much for coming down to this beautiful canal in manchester (laughs) thank you what a brilliant guest If you want to find out more, there are details in the show notes. If you want to get alerts when new episodes appear, then subscribe now. It's free, so no excuses. From me, Etienne Stott, thanks for listening. Cheerio for now.